welcome to the Court of Appeals. Um, let me introduce our panel for this morning. Uh, I am uh, Judge Donna Stroud. As, uh, to my right, we have Judge John Tyson. To my left, Judge Valerie Zachary. And we have one case for argument today. It looks like everyone is in place and ready to go and I think had previously gotten instruction on how to use everything. And um, have you already reserved your uh, rebuttal time? Yes, Okay. All right. Very good. Then we are ready to proceed. Thank you, Your Honors, and may it please the court. My name is Adrian Dellinger. I'm an assistant attorney general with the North Carolina Department of Justice. I am here representing the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services in this particular matter. Uh, we also have two other counsel for the two other appellants, uh, Michelle Smith, who represents Children's Home Society of North Carolina, and Erica Glass, who is representing the Forsyth uh, County Department of Social Services. Um, Attorney Smith will be handling the portion of the argument related to whether or not uh, either of those two other parties should be even party to the petition for judicial review of this jurisdictional issue. I'll be handling the rest of it. Uh, so in about 20 minutes, I'm going to turn it over to co-counsel for them to handle that. Um, but I just want to make sure the court was aware, and we, of course, will be uh, reserving approximately five minutes for rebuttal. <coughs> This case involves the eligibility of an adoptive family for adoption assistance benefits. This is a joint federal state program that's intended to provide assistance and incentives for prospective parents to adopt difficult to place children. In this case, the family was deemed ineligible for benefits based on many factors, including the failure to have an adoption assistance agreement in place prior to the adoption. However, an overreaching lower court substituted its own judgment for that of the agency's educated judgment and determination and ordered that the, the agency pay benefits to which the petitioners were ultimately un, ineligible to receive. The various state and federal rules and regulations related to this case are complicated. It's a morass of cross-references and incorporations by reference. That said, this case can really, can really be boiled down to one immutable truth, that the petitioners were never eligible for adoption assistance benefits. Hey, excuse me, this child clearly has some serious needs. Uh, why is it he considered a special needs child under the title um, uh, 4E program? Certainly. So special needs children is a special needs child is just one of the eligibility criteria that's necessary. Um, just because a child is adopted, just because the child may have special needs does not mean that, unfortunately, does not mean that the child is ultimately or that the family is ultimately eligible. Uh, here, whether or not this child was special needs at the time in 2014, um, at, the at that time, the definition, uh, the, the North Carolina rules and regulations were very different than what they are now. Uh, they did not incorporate by reference the federal eligibility statutes um, that, that, that sort of oversee the state uh, federal interplay. Um, but no, at 2014, he would not be considered special needs child, uh, mainly because at that time, the definition also required that there be some difficulty in adopting the child, that those special needs prevented 
or the incentives were required to help en enhance that child's adoptability. Let me ask you this. The child was born at 24 weeks? I believe so, yes, Your Honor. And the child was hospitalized for two months? I believe that's correct, Your Honor. Um, isn't that in and of itself a, an indication of a special needs that, that um, the parties should have been aware of or at least <clears throat> should have taken into consideration? as well as the condition of the mother and what was found in the, pre in the child's body. Certainly. Um, is it something that the uh, petitioner or that the appellants should have been aware of? No, Your Honor. Is it something that should have been taken into consideration? Possibly. I mean, that's uh, a matter of record. There's no dispute about that, correct? Uh, about what, Your Honor? About the child being born at 24 weeks, about the child being kept in NICU for two months, about the child, about, about the mother having a presence of amphetamines and and uh, drugs in their system when the child was born. Uh, yes, Your Honor. I don't. I don't believe that those factual issues are are, are at, at issue. Uh, I believe uh, counsel will point out it's born at 34 weeks, but we may be sort of uh, splitting hairs with that. Uh, Do any of those um, make you automatically qualify for um, uh, as a special needs child? You know, to make you eligible for adoption assistance. So those are. Uh, I just want to point out that those are two separate questions. It may make you eligible as a special needs child. That doesn't make you automatically eligible for adoption assistance benefits. And, and I think that's one of the, uh, one of the obvious, uh, the morass of, uh, of these regulations and statutes, how they interplay, the change that happened between 2014 and, and 2021 when they ultimately applied for these benefits. Um, but there are different, there, there's a multitude of eligibility criteria. Is there any dispute that a lot of the con, uh, present conditions of the child would not have been known at that time? The effects of that drugs at early birth that the child would have to develop to some period of time before all of those effects would be known? It is certainly possible. But what I would point out is that the definition, at least in the federal statutes for uh, special needs child, does incorporate somebody who has prenatal exposure to drugs or alcohol. And certainly this child, it appears, had that. So is this a duty to disclose? Is this, is this a, is it some duty on behalf of DSS or Children's Home to disclose to a prospective adoptive parent the background and, and the factors undisputed of this child? Is it a duty to disclose the Children's Home Society to disclose to the parents? Either that or DSS, either one. Well, uh, DSS was not involved in the adoption, and I think that's one of the most important facts in this case. This was a private adoption. The mother placed the child with the Children's Home Society of North Carolina. They immediately placed it, the child, with um, the whites, and then within about seven months, the child went through a pretty standard adoption. And so what was DSS's involvement? There wasn't any. None? Other than they would have done, their Medicaid unit would have uh, enrolled the child in Medicaid. But that was because the child did not have a parent. The child had been surrendered to a private adoption agency. At that point, the child has no assets, and they are categorically eligible for Medicaid. So at that point, did DSS have care and custody of the child? Absolutely not. Legal custody? No, absolutely not. So at what point did it pass directly to the, uh, to the Children's Society? Uh, my understanding uh, is that once the 
birth mother surrendered the child and signed the forms to surrender the child to Children's Home Society, that Children's Home Society became, you know, the guardian. They became the, the guardian of, of that child. And they remained and, in that position until, until the adoption was finally Until the approved. adoption was finalized. And that was seven months later? Approximately seven months, which is pretty standard time for adoptions. And, and I, I know we've been interrupting you, okay. but if you could please explain why wasn't this child eligible? Certainly. Um, so there are two periods that we want to look at, um, and I've sort of gone into great depths in our brief on this, but there's two time periods that I want to talk about this morning. One is 2014, when the child was actually adopted into the, you know, by the whites. Uh, the second is 2021, when they uh, actually finally adopted, uh, when it went through the, uh, <laughs> the application process for adoption assistance benefits. In 2014, what North Carolina had in place, uh, we have this joint federal state program. And what that means is the feds will give us some money as long as our program operates within their bounds. We have an agreement, a state plan. This is very similar to the process that we have for other public benefits with the federal government. Um, but we operate our program within our statutes, our rules, and that state plan. And at the time in 2014, <clears throat> a child would only be eligible under the statute if he was eligible to receive foster care maintenance payments or supplemental security income benefits. This child was not within the foster care system. This child was going through a private adoption, had been placed with a private adoption agency, and was ultimately adopted out of that. That is a separate process than children who are placed in foster care who are wards of the state, who are you know, cared for and placed by the county departments of social services, and ultimately they're eligible for foster care maintenance payments through Title IV-E, I believe. Um, and so at, this t at the time in 2014, the child was, since the child was placed through this private adoption, the only way that that child would be eligible for adoption assistance benefits would be if the child was receiving SSI, so Supplemental Security Income. That would require that they be deemed by the federal government to be so severely disabled that they need this supplemental income, um, which is a very high bar. And most importantly, this child was not receiving SSI. There are several, stat uh, there are several um, administrative code provisions that were in place at the time that have subsequently been changed, and we'll go through how those, those are different. But at the time, the administrative code was very clear that the child had to be within the placement responsibility of a North Carolina agency authorized to place, a ch place children for adoption. This has always been interpreted and clearly means a North Carolina agency, an agency of the government, i.e. a Department of Social Services or a County Department of uh, Consolidated Human Services. This is a child that is then surrendered to the state that is in the foster care program and is being placed because of that. Uh, this also conforms with the federal law. If you look at the, uh, the federal law that's in place at the time and currently in place, when they say, you know, a state, a state agency, this is the interpretation. Had, had an application been made on the child's behalf at that time, would the child have been eligible? Absolutely as being, not. As being relinquished? Uh, absolutely not, no. If, if the child, if an application had been made, since the child had been placed with a private adoption agency in 2014, no, 
this child would not have been eligible. And this, is, this gets to the fundamental purpose of the program. And certainly, the federal government has broadened this. And the state, and we'll talk about in 2021, the, the state rules have actually expanded. But at that time, the policy goals of the North Carolina legislature were that children that was, was more limited, that we are trying to encourage people to adopt children that are in DSS custody. We are trying to get people to adopt children who are so severely disabled that they're receiving SSI. That was the goal of the program. The program is intended to incentivize adopting children that are difficult to adopt. Um, and that's one of the key points in this case. There's nothing to indicate that prior to the child's adoption, there was anything that stopped the whites from adopting this child. They immediately took the child in. Seven months is a very normal amount of time to have an adoption go through. There was nothing in the record that indicates that there was any barrier at that time for to them adopting this child. So in 2014, when they adopted the child, the regulations, the statutes were much more sort of stringent and restrictive. Only children that were adopted out of DSS custody, only children that had SSI, these are the children that would be eligible. So at this time, CW was categorically ineligible. In 2021, if we were to somehow look at though at, at 2014 and say, well, that's not the right time period to look at, I, I, I would disagree with that. But you know, just, just for argument's sake, if we look at 2021, what the Social Services Commission did in rewriting the rules is started to adopt this new federal standard, which is a little bit broader, which does allow adoption assistance benefits for children that were adopted out of a private adoption agency's custody. However, at the time, you had to be what, they, what the statute calls an applicable child, and that's based on your age at the time of your adoption. And the statute as it's written, as it was written in 2021, I believe as it was written in 2014 is, in 2014, if you were adopted in 2014, you had to be eight years of age or older to be considered an applicable child. And so if you are seven months old, you're clearly not over at the age of eight. And so there's been a lot of questions here today about you know, is this child a special needs child? We would argue that the child still doesn't meet those, those requirements. However, that was never really fully considered by the, 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 the certainly was not considered well by the trial court or the, the, the lower court. And it doesn't seem that a lot of these eligibility criteria were really uh, given a lot of thought by, you know, the, the state hearing office of the Department of Social Services. And that's to be expected. They, there was a very clear reason why the child was not eligible. An adoption assistance agreement was not in place at the time of the adoption. That is a very clear requirement, not only in state statute, but also in the federal statutes that, 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 that are applicable to this case. And so they did sort of render a decision on a fairly clear issue, whether or not the child had an adoption assistance agreement. In this case, what should have happened, if, I understand, you know, the, the lower court may not have been happy with. Excuse me, what about the extenuating circumstances doctrine? Certainly. So, uh, you know, again, this is a case where this child was just never eligible. So if we grant extenuating circumstances, we're still back at the same place, which is the child 
doesn't meet those eligibility requirements that we that, that that I just talked about where, you know, in 2014, they had to be either adopted from uh, a county DSS custody or they had to have SSI. And so no matter how we s sort of parse this out, you know, whether we say, okay, they should, uh, we're not gonna require that they have an adoption assistance agreement in place prior to the adoption. We're gonna waive that requirement. Maybe this child is a special needs child or not. None of those things we're conceding here. But even if you just push those to the side and say, let's give, the whites the benefit of the doubt on those issues. They still just cannot get over this initial hurdle of the, in, the adoption assistance program is intended to provide uh, incentives for a very specific uh, subset of people, and they just didn't meet those eligibility requirements. With regard to CW, um, who was, was placed with Children's Home Society, if he had been receiving SSI, would he have been eligible? I believe so. In that hypothetical, yes. If he was so disabled that, SS, that somebody had, had applied for disability and he was receiving it, although I, I, I don't know if there's enough information or facts to know whether or not the federal government would have found him so disabled as to receive SSI. Mr. Uh, Dellinger, will you look at page 52 and 53 of the record? It's um, <clears throat> pages um, three and four of Judge Long's order. And is this the record on appeal? Yes. Okay. Well, I'm sorry, can you give me those pages? Page 52 and 53. And this is the... This is Judge Long's order. Yes, okay, certainly. Um, there are findings of fact that he made. I'm specifically looking at um, 23 and 24. Mm -hmm. Bottom of the 23, despite the federal and laws and policies described above, respondent continuously maintains the language of NCAC and CFR is clear and does not provide for exceptions. You see that? Yes, sir. And then 24 at the top, B, at birth, CW was born at approximately 24 weeks. Okay. Do you challenge either one of those findings of fact? I think respondents would continue to maintain that no, there is not, there are not exceptions um, that, that the relevant state and federal statutes do not. So you're saying that's more of a conclusion of law than it is a finding of fact? I would think, I, I would more, uh, I would qualify that probably more as a conclusion of law. You agree that uh, these findings would be binding on this court if they're not challenged? If they are unchallenged, um, but I do believe that in our briefing, we went through and, and, and discussed these findings and, and the factual underlines for them. And you agree you have the burden and your co-counsel has a burden to show error and prejudice from this order? Uh, most importantly, prejudice, yes. And error. And error, yes. So if, if we accept Judge Long's findings of fact, mm -hmm. if we're bound by those, doesn't that directly contradict your, or, your, your argument? No, Your Honor. No, Your Honor. So the, the main argument that I'm certainly making here today is that whether or not this child would be considered a special needs child, uh, whether or not they should or should not have had an adoption assistance agreement in place prior to the adoption in 2024. Well, let's go back. You, you mentioned 2014 and 2022. Uh, there was a period of time 
where there was a pre-adopted placement with the parents, correct? Uh, 2014. Right after the child was born. Sure, yes. Um, and during that time, Children Home Society or someone other than them had legal custody and legal responsibility for the child, correct? Uh, yes, sir. Up until the time the adoption was final. Yes, sir. So what obligation is there from either DSS or CHS to investigate what's, what's available for a child in pre-adoptive care? You've already admitted that the child may have been eligible for SSI had an application been made. Oh, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to say that my position was they may have been eligible. I, I don't know whether they would or would not have been eligible. We, we'll never know because that, so I, I guess, you know, is it a waiver by the parents or is it, I'm trying to see who had that response in a critical six, seven months. You know, someone had to look after the needs of the child. Correct. And DSS has responsibility for every child. I mean, you might say they weren't involved, but someone was, was this child was on the NICU unit. Someone had to be responsible for this child and to look after the needs of this child and to secure whatever benefits might be available for this child. Would you agree with that? As counsel for the Department of Health and Human Services, I don't know if I'd necessarily agree or disagree with that, pos that position. Um, I, well, let me, let, me, let me simplify it. Whoever had legal custody of the child also had the responsibility to care for the child. To care for the child, yes. Okay. Um, but let's, if we take that hypothetical just a little bit farther and say that somebody, anybody, had applied for adoption assistance benefits on behalf of CW and the Whites in 2014, that application would have been denied. Well, you've already said if they'd applied for SSI and had been approved, then the child would have been eligible. Under that hypothetical, yes. So going back to my original question, someone has legal responsibility for this child, for the care, custody, and control of this child. During that period of time before the parents adopted the child, what obligation do they have during that period of time to seek all available means to help support that child? I think, I don't know, and I think um, my co-counsel might be able to answer that question better, but I will say I think the obligation, if it falls, it, it would not fall on the Department of Health and Human Services, and it would not fall on the Department of Social Services, neither of which entity had any idea that this child existed and did not have any, um, did not do anything with relation to this child. Um, and so, you know, I, I hope that maybe answers your question. Thank you. I'm going to turn it over. I think there's some time left for my co-counsel to discuss it. Thank you. asked a lot of questions yes you and, uh, so um, I'm gonna you, you would only have like uh, two and a little bit of minutes um, you know to reserve the rebuttal time so I'm gonna give you an extra three minutes so you do, you at least have five so. thank you um, may it please the court uh, my name is Michelle Smith I'm with the law firm of Hill Evans Jordan and Beatty in Greensboro 
We represent the Children's Home Society, which is a private, nonprofit child placing agency and is one of the three uh, respondent appellants in this matter. Um, I, I'd like to, uh, I really want to address a narrow issue that, that applies to the Children's Home Society and to the Forsyth County Department of Social Services, but um, before I do that, I feel compelled to address the question that is before the court, that the court asked, and, and that is who was responsible for this child when the child was placed with the Children's Home Society for adoption. The Children's Home Society was responsible for this child. The Children's Home Society had legal custody of this child. Um, the order is in error in that it says the child was born at 24 weeks, the child was born at 34 weeks. Um, the child was in the hospital for about two weeks before being placed in a pre-adoptive placement with the Whites in June of 2014. That's just an error by the court. That is correct. Uh, it was an error in the petition as well, so the court just picked that up, I believe, Your Honors. Um, for children who are in the custody of a private agency the, in 2014, the only way that a child could be approved for adoption assistance would be if the child was eligible for supplemental security income. Uh, and to be eligible for supplemental security income, a child would have had to have had a mental or physical impairment that resulted in marked and severe functional limitations and could be expected to result in death. I mean, it was a very, very, it still is, a very, very high bar. There, are, there aren't many children there, and, and who qualify for supplemental security income. And when they do, these children are extraordinarily sick. Um, the Children's Home Society relies on the healthcare professionals treating the child to make the recommendation of whether supplemental whether these medical conditions are so severe that the agency should apply for supplemental security, which Mr. is a very Dellinger, long process. Uh, I beg that Mr. Dellinger mentioned that there was uh, Medicare or Medicaid payments for the medical expenses, is that correct? Correct. Shortly after the child's birth, as soon as the child was released to the agency for adoption by the birth mom, then the agency applied for um, Medicaid for the child, as they do for all children. And that, was, in their that was approved. And that was approved. It's approved because the child has no parents. And, um, and that continues until I believe the time period is three months after the adoption is final. And so there's. I don't. I don't want to. I know you're limited on time, but I. I want to ask you on finding a fact 23 in Judge Long's order. That finding I, I mentioned, Judge Dellinger, despite the federal laws and policies described above, respondents continuously maintain that the language of NCAC and CFO is clear and does not provide for quote um, exceptions. Is that still your position? I beg your pardon. Is that still the the Children's Home Society's position? Well, it, it is our position in that um, you, you have to follow the rules. You have to follow the rules. And, 
the, the exception that the petitioners talk about, they talk about uh, extenuating circumstances, which quite frankly, that phrase does not exist in the federal law anymore. It didn't after 2001. The, 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 um, the federal regulation or question, policy information question that addressed that, that created that extenuating circumstances was voided. It was set aside in 2001. And when the child welfare manual was redone, it was put in a question and answer format. Now they do create a situation, they do address the right of a parent, of an adoptive parent for a fair hearing in the event that um, a, the public agency, which would in this case would have been the Department of Health and Human Services or the Department of Social Services, did not, ex did not make the family aware of the adoption assistance program. When a child is in, a, in foster care, in the care and the custody of a public agency, they have an obligation to advise them of adoption assistance. That obligation doesn't extend to a private agency. And quite frankly, So when the mother relinquished the child, it went directly to your client, is that correct? So the mother relinquished the child. It went directly, custody of the child went directly at that point to your client? Correct, while the child was still in the hospital. So there was, DSS had no involvement whatsoever during this period of time? None at all. Um, the, the only, tangential involvement was when Children's Home applied for Medicaid for the child, and we did that through the Guilford County Department of Social Services because that's where our agency is located. Um, if I may, Your Honor, I'd like to address this, this NARA issue. Uh, yeah, you're after time, but I'll, I'll limit it. Okay, we'll, we'll let you do that, and then we'll adjust time accordingly. Thank you. Um, the issue I'd like to address is whether the Forsyth County Superior Court in hearing Mr. and Mrs. White's petition for discretionary review had subject matter jurisdiction to order the Children's Home Society and Forsyth County DSS to approve this child for adoption assistance and to pay the White's attorney's fees associated with their petition. And we assert, Your Honors, that, that the court did not. Uh, under Chapter 108A, uh, the law is clear that the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services has the ultimate decision-making authority in determining eligibility for adoption assistance. Children's Home doesn't have that authority. DSS doesn't have that authority. In addition, the White's petition for discretionary review that, that fair hearing that they got on their petition for discretionary review was limited by statute to a review of the Department in Health and Human Services final decision. Uh, neither Children's Home nor Forsyth County DSS had the ability or the authority to make the final decision, the final decision denying the White's application for adoption assistance was rightly made by the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. And, and if I may point out, uh, Children's Home wasn't a part, we didn't participate in the determination of, of eligibility in the initial decision. We weren't involved in the, uh, any of the appeals. We weren't involved in the final decision. Um, the first that we knew that of, of 
we were made parties in the petition for discretionary review, but um, we didn't have a role, legally we didn't have a role in that process. Neither 108A79 or that regards public assistance appeals, nor the judicial review statute allows the petitioners or the superior court to bring in other agencies as responsible parties, as was done here. Um, under North Carolina law, children's, the court really had no authority to order DSS and Children's Home responsible for the department's final decision or to order either agency to pay adoption assistance or attorney's fees. Um, the petitioners argue in their brief that uh, CHS and Children's Home should be barred from raising this issue uh, regarding lack of subject matter jurisdiction. Um, however, the, the case law, the law of this court is clear that subject matter jurisdiction can be raised at any time, including at appeal. Um, so we would, uh, Children's Home and the Department of Social Services for Forsyth County joins the Department of Health and Human Services in asking the court to reverse the Superior Court's ruling as to all three agencies. But on behalf of Children's Home and DSS, we would ask you to reverse it as to our two agencies based on a lack of subject matter jurisdiction. Um, are there additional questions? Thank you so much. And, um, yeah, since we have a lot of questions, y'all still have your five minutes for rebuttal that you can provide us as needed, and I will expand time also uh, for petitioners if we need to accommodate questioning or whatever. So, thank you. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court. My name is Tiffany Massey, and I represent the petitioners, FLEs, in this matter. Um, I think it might be helpful to give kind of an overview of how the private agency and DSS, how their roles come together in this case. Um, as set out in the Child Welfare Manual, um, that DSS and Department of Health and Human Services set forth. Um, in a perfect world, the private agency would, like they did for Medicaid, they would send a referral to DSS for, to evaluate this child for adoption assistance or foster care assistance since at this time he was still technically in foster care. Um, once they sent in the referral, DSS and the Department of Health and Human Services would decide his eligibility, and then they would report back to the private agency. Now, let me clarify something. You said he was technically in foster care. What yes. You mean by that? So um, in North Carolina, the technical definition of foster care is the provision of 24-hour services to a child by a family, um, So which is very clear my clients well, fit that. Isn't that a family, I mean, that, where the state is paying for the, um, for the foster care? So if I take a child in my home independently and the child stays in my home for a week, I'm, I'm um, participating in foster care? Per, per the definition in, um, I'm sorry, it's 
131, it's section, chapter 131D, I believe. Um, and the, the definition is solely the provision of, of daily living services and things like that. Do you provision by whom, I guess? Um, by parents who have been picked or chosen by the private agency. By a private agency in addition to the state? Yes. Because I know for like in this with the state program, in order to provide foster care, you have to go through lots of classes and training and typically, yes. Yeah. So my clients did receive um, they each received at least seven hours of training in um, I don't know the exact name of it, but it, it was um, training that is typically done for licensed foster parents. Is there a difference between foster care and pre-adoption placement? Not that I know of. Do you agree that CW would have, been, would have, in order to have been eligible for adoption assistance benefits in 2014, he would have had to have been in state foster care or receiving SSI? No, because there is um, the, the last portion in the special needs determination is reserved for children who have the potential to become special needs children. Um, so they have, one of the things that is specifically mentioned is prenatal exposure to toxins, which it's very clear in the record that this child had. Um, is, is that what uh, Judge Long is referring to in finding of fact 23? Is that the quote-unquote exception? No. So the exception that he is uh, referring to is what is essentially the extenuating circumstances exception. And I do want to clarify, um, CHS previously stated that, that the, the policy announcement that essentially has the extenuating circumstances exception was overruled. That is incorrect. It was not overruled. Um, the, the specific term extenuating circumstances is not in that policy statement, but the doctrine itself is still in there and is still valid. And the case law that I've cited, there's cases stemming from 1991 all the way to 2015. Um, all of those courts found that exception, even though those specific terms were not in there, they've still found that exception because of this great duty that was placed on both the state agency and private agencies. And another thing I would like to point out is that policy announcement specifically states that state agencies do not have to have the placement and care of the child in order to receive adoption assistance. It can be an agency that is licensed by the state to provide foster care and adoption services, so, which CHS does. So does that does. go to the subject matter jurisdiction? That's why, in your opinion, DSS and Children's Home Society are proper respondents here? Correct. And um, the, the fact that uh, DSS assessed CW for Medicaid um, in the child welfare manual, it, they have 
to keep records of these children. So they would have had to start a record when he was applied and became eligible for Medicaid. They had, they had that record of him. So that was their involvement. And the, the cases, a lot of the cases involve children who've been relinquished to private agency and the courts found no, nothing wrong with that. In receiving assistance. Correct. Even though it was a private agency. Correct. Isn't um, being special needs just one element of the eligibility criteria? Yes. Um, so the other one, the other one, there's one other that the the child has to meet, and I believe it's that he cannot be returned home, which is very clear mother relinquished and the father's rights were terminated. Um, what about the um, being in foster care or receiving SSI? So, I mean, we, we would contend that technically he was in foster care. Um, are, do, you, do you agree that those are elements? I mean, that that's another issue? I, I would not say that it is an element that he has to be in foster care. Um, I, would, I wouldn't say that he has to be in foster care. Um, I believe the... Or, or receiving SSI. Or receiving SSI, I believe the the federal statute also talks about um, being eligible for um, aid to families with dependent children, right. um, which he would have met. Um, but in 2014, North Carolina had not incorporated the, the federal rules, right? It had to it had to abide. By the federal by the federal regulations, but it hadn't incorporated them. When it had its own statute in 2014, right? Yes, but we would submit that it's it's federal law, and the state agencies still receive federal funding. So, in order to receive that funding, they still would have had to comply with federal law. Well, I mean, in order to receive federal funding for the adoption assistance benefits that they award. If they award adoption assistance benefits that don't comply with the federal rules, then the state just gets to pay for it, right? Yes, and, and that presents a unique distinction that I also want to make clear. So the Department of Health and Human Services found that he would be ineligible, but the, the um, Allegheny case and the Laird case that actually Children's Home Society cited kind of point out the distinction that if a child, a child could be ineligible for federal assistance, but he could still be eligible for state assistance. Um, but none of that was determined by the department. Um, and that's, that's part of our issue is they, they didn't make really any determination at all. They just said, well, he doesn't, they didn't sign an adoption assistance agreement, so they're, that's it. There, there's no further assessment. Is so, TW receiving SSI at this time? No, not to my knowledge. So your point is, even if he was ineligible for federal, that there would still be a duty to apply for the state or at least inform Correct. your clients of the availability of a state. Correct. Are those standards any different? 
Um, no, um, from my understanding. Obviously, SSI would not be one of the categories under state funding. Yes, um, but from my understanding, the, the state standards are actually less stringent than the federal. If we were to agree with your argument, would we not have to find that foster care necessarily includes pre-adoptive placement? I don't. Let me put it another way. Without finding pre-adoptive placement is foster care. Is there still a duty on behalf of the, of the petitioners to have informed or provided any assistance? Yes, they would still have that duty. Even though the child was not, quote, in foster care? We would still submit that he was in foster care. I understand. Hear my question carefully. Okay. I'm saying in order for us to accept your premise, we would have to find, this court would have to accept the fact that pre-adoptive care is foster care, correct? Correct. We would have to accept that premise. Correct. And so my question is, if we don't accept the fact that pre-adoptive care is foster care, do you, is your client still have some right to be informed of program assistance that may be available? I believe so, just based on the case law. Um, it's the, the case law is is very clear, and there the there are several cases that are on point with my client's situation, um, and the 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 courts didn't specifically um, state in their decision that the child was in quote unquote foster care. Um, but it, it went through the, um, the, the elements, the requirements for Title IVE. You're talking about the case law that you cite from other jurisdictions? Correct. Going back to the, your other question, um, so the child is approximately 10 years old now, is that correct? Uh, he's approximately eight, I believe. Eight? Mm -hmm. Well, 14. No. <laughs> Yes. He's 10. Yes, you're correct. Okay. Um, are there programs out there available now, given his status? Are there aid to families with dependent children or um, SSI? Would he be eligible for SSI based upon his current condition? I am, I am not sure about SSI. It's our position that he is still eligible for Title IVE, um, but there, there are... Um, there's also Title IVB um, that is discussed in the um, Child Welfare Manual, um, as well as any state adoption assistance programs that are available. Does that continue until the child reaches majority? Um, yes. And until I've, 18? Yes. Would that be true under any of these programs to benefit minor children? Yes. Um, the last question I want to ask you, is there, is there an issue of waiver here that, that this wasn't brought to the agency's attention earlier by your client? No, and, and that is something that the, the cases go through in detail. They, they state that it is very clear from the legislature that the, 
the burden is on the department and the agency and we would submit that um, 108A-50.2 essentially states that the department in conjunction with private agencies are given federal funding and they, they determine you know how the funds are to be used so we would submit there is no difference between a private agency and a state agency. Um, so that there, there is no waiver um, and actually some of the cases even talk about of a um, that parents cannot waive assistance on behalf of the child and that um, parents should be told ahead of time that if, if they adopt from a private agency or if, if they go through a private adoption, that that disqualifies them from adoption assistance. They, they place that burden on the department to let them know that prior to adopting. Um, so we would submit there, there is no waiver. Well, the argument from your colleagues or on the other side is that the child was never in DSS custody, that the child went directly from the hospital into, into um, Children Home Society. Yes, but there's no requirement that the state agency have responsibility for placement and care. But has it, haven't, hasn't the federal government said that, the, that DSS does not have any obligation to seek out and inform uh, unknown individuals about adoption assistance programs? Yes, that, that is very true. And, and if the child had not received Medicaid um, at all, you know, we probably wouldn't be here. But they evaluated him for Medicaid. They had a file on him. So, so basically, but, the, but aren't, aren't there a lot of children receiving Medicaid? Yes, but it, it's still. I mean, but in a lot of these children, you know, they're, they're, they're you know, they're not in the pipeline to be adopted. It's, you know, there's no plan for them to be adopted. So are you, is it your contention that DSS has to inform um, somebody, um, you know, the parents or somebody? I, I mean, of, of, you know, every child who's receiving Medicaid in this country. DSS or the private agency. Um, the policy announcement makes no real distinction between a private agency that, that is licensed by the state and has responsibility for care and the state agency. So we would submit that in this circumstance it was both of their responsibilities to inform my clients about adoption assistance. Um, I, I, I just want to briefly talk about um, the subject matter jurisdiction argument that CHS put forth. Um, we would submit that their argument is essentially personal jurisdiction. Um, the case law that, that she cited talks about the specific claims um, involved and the subject matter of the action. There's no um, dispute that the subject matter is not is wrongfully before the court 
Um, what is in dispute is with regard to CHS. Um, so we would submit that it's a personal jurisdiction argument that she's trying to kind of hide as a subject matter jurisdiction. Let's, let's, let's presume that's true. Uh, if there's no personal jurisdiction, that would also subject the claim to dismissal, correct? No, we contend that because she didn't waive it at the trial level that, uh, I'm sorry, because she didn't assert it at the trial level that it's waived. It would be waived. Mm -hmm. And that can, in personal jurisdiction, can be waived by, by not challenging. Mm -hmm. So even if there's a personal jurisdiction defect, your, your argument is that it was waived by making an appearance and not raising it? Mm -hmm. Correct. And go, again, going back to the subject matter jurisdiction argument, you're saying that it arose by virtue of subject matter jurisdiction that is proper as against both respondent or both petitioners because of? Correct. Um, and because they're, 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 it's, the relationship between the two um, is so in this action that we couldn't move forward without CHS, if that makes any sense. But did DSS ever, other than applying for Medicare, did DSS ever exert any type of authority over this child? Not to my knowledge. Um, however, like I said, the, the case law and the policy announcement is very clear that it doesn't matter whether they had placement and care control or not. Um, it's, it's still on the agency. So if I wanted, if a, if a parent wanted to place a child with a certain family, mm -hmm. a mother, and there was basically no involvement, or even if DSS had applied for Medicare for that child, would that be enough to bring in, bring them into the jurisdiction? Yes. The fact they had some involvement, even some. though Correct. it was limited to Medicaid. Your argument is that that would give subject matter jurisdiction. Correct. What about the Children's Home Society? Um, can you repeat that question? How does the Children's Home Society have subject matter jurisdiction? Do they have the ability to apply for the adoption assistance? Under, under the rules? Under the rules, no. Um, they, the, the child welfare manual specifically states that they rely on DSS to actually send in the application and determine eligibility. So is it your contention then that their involvement here is because of their failure to do that? Mm -hmm. Correct. Basically, their failure to alert DSS? Yes, yes. Um, and I, I also want to point out, if you look at the, um, the initial denial of eligibility decisions, um, the June 9th letter and the July 23rd letter, as well as um, the, uh, the final decision letter from the department, it's, 
it basically states that they're denying his eligibility simply because that they failed to sign an adoption assistance agreement. Um, so any, any sort of eligibility argument we would assert is, is waived by their failure to really bring it up until, the, until this appeal. Um, that their, their main argument at trial was a failure to sign the adoption assistance agreement, um, which is, is that, very what, clear. Didn't the judge find that the child Didn't the judge find that the child would be eligible? Yes. So how did the judge find that the child would be eligible if eligibility wasn't argued before um, somebody? It was, it was briefly mentioned in, um, in their argument and part of the eligibility um, stems on parents signing an adoption assistance agreement prior to the adoption. Um, that's one of the requirements. In your petition for judicial review, I'm on page five of the record. You assert under Statement of Facts, paragraph 20, that your clients became foster parents prior to accepting CW into their home. That is your assertion. Yes, um, and at, at the time of the petition, um, that's what I believed after speaking with my clients. I'm not sure that they actually gained full licensure. Um, like I said, they, they both completed um, at least seven hours in specific training programs, but I don't know that they ever received a specific license. Was that allegation disputed? Was that allegation no. challenged? No, not until the appeal. And did Judge Long, in his order, did he tend to make that finding or not? Um, I don't know. I don't think it's a, a specific finding. Um, I, I believe it's in the facts, actually. It might, it might be in the findings of fact. Um, and so that's, that would be an error. Well, you also say in the petition in um, paragraph 17 that DSS denied petitioner's request for adoption assistance mainly due to the fact that his adoption was finalized prior to any request for adoption assistance and prior to um, entry into any sort of adoption assistance agreement. So you're saying mainly, um, which seems to imply to me that it wasn't based solely on the fact that an adoption assistance agreement had not been finalized prior to the adoption. Yes, however, we would still submit that that, that was the only um, reason for their denial. And in the transcript, Judge Long actually states towards the end is he, he asked is the only issue before the court is whether there's an exception to the quote unquote adoption assistance rule. And all parties 
implicitly agree. Um, none of the respondents ever really said, no, that's not the only issue or anything like that. So we would submit that it was. So that's his finding of fact 23, what he said, the exception. Mm -hmm. that, that's what the basis is of that. Mm -hmm. So how did he find that the child was eligible? He, he goes through the requirements uh, in, his, in his findings. So he talks about um, how the child was relinquished. He talks about the child's um, various diagnoses. Um, I don't see anything in here about SSI or foster care, though. I don't think it specifically, I don't think he specifically addresses the fact that he was in foster care, but he states. Well, it's it, well, uh, yeah. I mean, but it, it does specifically state in paragraph 11 on page 54 that CW would have been eligible to receive adoption assistance in 2014. But I, again, I don't see anything about foster care or SSI. I don't think he specifically states that, that he was in foster care, but he in um, paragraph 24 on page four, um, he states that his biological mother relinquished custody of him to respondent CHS upon his birth and the biological father's rights were terminated, um, which we would submit kind of alludes to him being in foster care, even though it doesn't necessarily say that. This finding of fact 22, um, policy interpretation question log from the, from the USDHHS, adoptive agencies, whether public or private, have an affirmative duty to, to notify prospective adoptive parents and prospective legal guardians of the availability of the assistance and the failure of the state agency to advise potential documents. Uh, justifies a fair hearing. So that is that what we're referring to as the fair hearing that your colleagues referred to in their, in their argument? Yes, and the child welfare manual actually specifically states that they are entitled to a fair hearing if they are denied eligibility and they believe that they were wrongfully denied. So is that the policy, even though extenuating circumstances has been eliminated, is, is it your argument that this is still the policy of the fair hearing? The, the specific words, extenuating circumstances, are not in that policy statement. Right. But the, but the doctrine is still very much valid. Um, and and the, I believe um, Children's Home Society cites another policy statement that she previously contended overruled the extenuating circumstances doctrine, but that was inaccurate. If you actually look at the list of policy announcements that were withdrawn, um, 
the one mentioned in 22 is not listed on those. And as, the, as being withdrawn. Correct. Yeah. And the, the case law that I cited, all of them cite back to that um, even after, um, after 2001. told you I'd give you some leeway on the time since I knew we'd have a lot of questions and I gave leeway to the other side. Uh, so, you know, I'll give you an additional five minutes if you need it. Um, of course, we never encourage people to argue longer than they need to. Um, but like I said, we were obviously interrupted a lot. So anything you, you need to address, I'll give you some time for that. Thank you. Um, I, I believe that's everything unless you all have any other questions. I just want to clarify one thing, and the, the record seems to me to be clear, but I, I want to get it on the record here. Is it clear from the record that your clients made Children Home Society or DSS, were, that they informed them of the issues that they had found with the child during that seven-month period before the adoption was finalized? Yes, um, since Children's Home Society had legal custody of the child, they, um, they were responsible for all of the doctor visits. Um, so there was, a, even after the child was released to their care, mm -hmm. and there were things that they began to notice about the child that they had to return the child yes. for care? Yes, and uh, children, my understanding of the way CHS operates is that it, it's very similar to DSS. There's a um, kind of a, a, a social worker type person that keeps in constant contact with my clients. Um, and, and they had somebody like that that they were in constant contact with and, and telling them about, about all of his special needs. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honors. So what would you have the court to do? We would ask you to affirm the order from the Superior Court. Thank you. Thank you. And your rebuttal, I said you still have your five minutes of rebuttal, and if y'all need to divide that, you can, or you can just do it. Uh, against my advice, co-counsel is fine with me handling rebuttal, <laughs> and I will take whatever time the court is willing to give me. Okay. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Your Honors. I, I wanted to start, and and the petitioners included this in their uh, attached to their brief, which is the, I believe the most recent copy of the Department of you know, North Carolina uh, Division of Social Services Adoption Assistance Policy. The very first sentence of policy is what I think we certainly focus on and what I would like the court to make sure that they're keeping in the center of their brain when we are deciding this issue. In years past, many children were deemed to be unadoptable and languished in foster care in part due to a lack of financial resources available to support them in an adoptive home. That's the crux of this case. Is this a child that would have languished without a parent, without adoption assistance? That's the question that is asked each time. That's the fundamental question that's asked each time that adoption assistance application is filed. Here the answer is no. This child 
may or may not have had special needs. However, this child was immediately placed with the petitioners. The adoption went through without any issue. There's nothing in the record to indicate that but for adoption assistance, the petitioners would not have adopted this child. Now, let me ask you one thing. So um, on page 54 of the record, uh, the conclusions number 10, uh, without such assistance and treatment, CW's placement uh, is at risk and therefore is a substantial possibility he may be returned to a foster care system. Um, so you're saying he wasn't at risk of, you know, the, it wasn't a problem with the adoption, but it could be that this could happen. Which I mean, would um, obviously create a much larger financial burden on, um, you know, on the state as well as obviously um, being very disruptive and bad for CW. Right. Uh, the, the state is not in the business of predicting the future, and this is certainly, I mean, it is, is bad. Um, we don't know what kind of problems a child will develop, whether that child is adopted or biological. Um, I, I would not be able to apply for adoption assistance for my biological child who develops severe issues. You know, this is, this is the situation that we are in. This is, you know, public benefits are never an easy topic. Uh, these lines can sometimes seem like they're being drawn in arbitrary ways. But those lines are drawn by our legislature. They are drawn by the people who appropriate the money to these programs, and they make those decisions as to who can and should and will receive those benefits. I understand. I'm, I go back to my question of the time that the child was in pre-adoptive placement, roughly seven months that combined with the circumstances of the child's birth mm -hmm. and the condition the child was in when born. It seems to me that, that you, some of the respondents at least knew that this child had significant medical problems while the child was clearly in the custody of Child Protective Services or Child, um, not Child Protective Services, uh, Children's Home Society. Children's Home Society, I'm, I'm sorry. No. I mean, there's no dispute of that, is that correct? So, did the child have issues while they were in the custody? Medical. Uh, medical issues during the- That were the, brought to the attention- Certainly. Of, of the legal custodian. Certainly. Um, so, uh, again, I would point, one thing I would point you to is the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services guidance. This was issued back in January of 2001. It's been attached to our brief. It was attached to their brief. And importantly, on page uh, 13 of this, of this federal guidance, it says, however, in circumstances where the state agency does not have responsibility for placement, that's clearly the case here, and care or otherwise Unaware of the adoption of a potentially special needs child, it is incumbent upon the adoptive family to request adoption assistance. But you agree they would have to be told that it was available? No, I would not agree. Um, the, the point There's no of, duty to inform them? No. Uh, in fact, that's the point of this portion of the guidance, is that there is a general obligation upon the agencies to help make sure that the public is generally aware of this program. But we only have a duty to notify uh, prospective 
you know, parents and families, prospective families, if they are adopting from the public system, not private adoptions. Uh, there's just one thing I want to touch on. I know, uh, Judge Tyson, you've asked quite a, a lot of questions about uh, you know, whether uh, something was uh, asserted or challenged, and, and, and those are all very, in, you know, very good and important questions. Uh, I think the one thing I would say is that the process for petitions for judicial review is uh, also kind of a weird process. There's technically no requirement in statute that the respondent in a petition for judicial review file a response. Uh, we typically do. Um, it's fairly small and pro forma, but there's not the same sort of pleading requirements as you would have in, in standard civil litigation. Do you at least stipulate that if there was an absence or defect in personal jurisdiction that appearing and not challenging would waive it? For personal jurisdiction, uh, that certainly may be the case. I would certainly fall upon my co-counsel's arguments in those spaces. Uh, there's no real question as to whether or not the HHS should be party to this litigation. We're here and, and we understand we should be. Um, but as well as the other two respondents, do we agree that they should that they should? No, I'm, I'm saying everybody showed up and nobody challenged subject matter jurisdiction. No one challenged personal jurisdiction. I, that is that is correct that nobody did that that is correct um, the only thing I'll say is that you know once an order is issued that has certain findings of fact and conclusions of law uh, once we come to the Court of Appeals as you know it's it's sort of open we can challenge anything within there and I would just encourage you uh, I believe uh, the Children's Home Society's initial brief goes into some pretty significant detail on specific factual findings that they uh, that all three parties really had had uh, concern and contention um, so oh, it's going up. I'm sorry. Uh, with that, unless there are any other questions, uh, we would ask that the court certainly uh, do three things. Uh, we would certainly ask that you overturn this decision and that you remand it back to dismiss, uh, upholding the initial decision that was found by the Department of Health and Human Services uh, hearing office. We would also ask that you overturn the award of attorney's fees. We haven't really discussed that here. We discussed it in our brief. It's intrinsically tied to whether or not we should have won here or not, um, but we would rest on our briefs there. Uh, and, and certainly, again, if, if, if those first two things, if you're not going to find those first three things, at the very least, we would ask that uh, the arguments that my co-counsel has made regarding jurisdiction, that the, that the two parties who really should not have been part of this litigation, uh, that, they, that they be dismissed out as uh, no subject matter jurisdiction. So unless any other questions, we would thank the court. And thank all of you for your arguments. Uh, there's a lot going on in this case, and so we appreciate your answering.